I've not had a chance to have breakfast yet. I've been up since number six. What are you eating? A macaroon? What's that? Mm, a cardamom nut. <laughs> what have you What have you been doing Christ. since half past six? I'm, I am intrigued. As... Dog walking, child what? monitoring. What are you having for breakfast? A cardamom nut, please. Priestal run. What planet are you living on? Mmm, it's Don't delicious. It might be delicious, but it's a cardamom knot. Please tell me that cardamom knot was was bespoke purchased on one of your chores this morning. Not that you have no. some sort of store of cardamom knots in the no. house. No, it was purchased at a food market yesterday. So it's not as fresh as it might be. It's a bit knotty. It's, still, it's a little bit knotty. It's quite a tough one. It's a Gordian knot. Sounds um, artisan, is it? Would it be considered oh, artisan? Oh, it it couldn't artisan. be more artisan, artisan change. Thanks, mate. It couldn't be more it artisan. Sounds artisan. Food market. Anything bought at the food market is already artisan by very definition, and now it's a cardamom well, you buy nut. digestives. That's not yeah. artisan, is it? They're digestives. No, they would do be you... artisan digestives. No, 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 do... no, no. no. They'd be digestives. You know what... They're taken out of the packet and dressed up as artisan. That's what they'd be. Do you know where you get an excellent cardamom knot? Uh, your house? The, the cafe formerly known as Sidsin in Didsbury Village, but it's now got a different name, I think. Steve will know. Uh, la la Shoe Bouquet. Bouquet Shoe. I'm looking well, forward one... to the day we can all get together and do a live broadcast, all with our own individual cardamom knots. Wouldn't that would be just... ideal. Oh, oh, wouldn't that be, be lovely? Be Is it tea or coffee best with them? Coffee? Well, I don't drink tea, so it's going to be coffee. Coffee, there we go, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, to be honest, I've got, I've got myself a, a, a Lavazza espresso from the machine, got a cardamom, cardamom knot. I'm having a really bourgeois breakfast, Chinch. Don't mind telling you. Good N- Lord. New name of Sidson is La Chouquette. Oh, okay. And I, d- I don't mind giving it a plug because it's excellent. Mm, is that fantastic. the one un- un- underneath your former yes. abode? Yeah. La Chouquette. La Chouquette. La Chouquette. Um, and real, real French people inhabit it. Mm, they're so from Lille. What does that mean? Chouquette <laughs> translates to... Chouquette. Um, it is a small shoe pastry puff topped with snowy white grains of pearl sugar. Ooh. Ooh. Way so better than a cardamom knot. Yeah, you could cardamom knot. If you opened a shop and called it cardamom knot, do you think people would expect it to contain pastries or would they be confused? The thing about the cardamom knot change is that yeah. it's like a better quality version of the cinnamon roll because fewer yeah. people know no. what it is. There's no cinnamon in it, is there, clearly? But cardamom tastes not dissimilar to cinnamon. But it's not cinnamon, is it? It's not cinnamon, no, it's cardamom. It's not cinnamon, is it? This is Seppi Spenny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, who last week was mostly Hugh, Rory Smith, who last week was partly Chinch, and Annie Hinchcliffe, who each and every week, upsettingly, is not Don Goodman. Um, the food is is a cardamom knot. Um, mm, delicious. Well done, everybody. All the blurb necessary for the pod description has been provided already by Rory. The football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Not a Scooby-Doo! <laughs> you know, Chinch, Tarek Panja is a hell of a journalist. Not only is he hot on the sports news of the day, sometimes being the very person to break that news, but he is also... Cerebral. He can conceptualise. And then when Tarek needs someone to bounce his ideas off, he calls his MIT colleague Rory Smith, who in both the journalistic and footballing sense is something of a clogger. He speaks with the dumbed down every man, if you will. So when Tarek came to Rory with a brilliant idea for a 32-team European Championship, it was one step too far for our monologuing contributor. And like all the ideas we come up with on the pod, he stole it and claimed it for his own, quickly mm. committing it to print as some sort of proof. So on today's set piece menu, we're going to discuss the mostly panja produced suggestion for an expanded Euros and why it might be better than the current expanded Euros. Um, that is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. We start with a couple of Euros-related gripes. Nick Adams writes from New York, distinguished gentleman. Apart from the banter and the joking, I was pleased that both German and English players took the knee before the game they played in the last 16. Pleased that the captains wore pride armbands, but was utterly repelled by the sound of English fans booing the German national anthem. I grew up in England and have vivid memories of its casual xenophobia. English friends like to tell me that that's changed now, but I do wonder. In fact, I don't wander long. My ears tell me that xenophobia is live and well. And had they not been lectured recently, I don't doubt there would have been jeers at players taking the knee as well. That's from Nick. Chinch, your groan suggests that uh, you were doing the game, obviously, for the international yes, broadcasting I was, yeah, I, I was, was watching it from BBC Towers, and I think I was... I don't know. We're all going to be on Andrew Neil's new GB News segment, Woke Watch, by saying it was absolutely disgraceful. It, it, it was, and like, with all the games that I've done, and again, the way the competition's gone, how the, the, the fans have perceived that I was, I was surprised, but maybe, as the email says, not so surprised. But I, it was 
awful. That was awful. Yeah, not great. I, I'm not a massive fan of the concept of the nation state, but, and I'm conscious that if I was, if I went and did it, I think I did Albania, Serbia in Albania, in Elbasan, Albania, a few years ago. And I'm pretty sure that when they played the Serb anthem before that, the Albanians didn't stand quietly and listen to it. I'm pretty sure they booed it. And I'm sure that like, if, I, if it's Argentina, Brazil, in front of a packed Monumental or, or Maracanã, then I'm pretty sure that, that those anthems aren't getting, getting t- kind of quietly applauded. So I'm conscious, and I think in, in those situations, there, there would be a, a temptation to describe it as atmosphere. What st- I was at the England-Germany game. I'm pretty sure Wembley had to turn the music up so you could hear it because the boos were so loud. And by, I didn't do England Scotland, but by all accounts, it was the same for Flower of Scotland. The thing that really struck me was they booed the Croat anthem. Now, I, my history is not perfect, but as far as I know, there's no, there's no kind of long-standing tension between England and Croatia other than the fact that Croatia won a semi-final three years ago. Um, what are you... And I don't want to be kind of all holier than now or all kind of puritanical about it. What are you doing by booing another country's anthem? Because I, as I understand it, some people do quite like the concept of the nation state and tend to be quite kind of upset if you if you kind of offend the their concept of the nation state. And I, I just is it are you saying you you don't think that country should exist? Is is it is it that the country is that that country is bad because because it, it it's got its own song? I, I don't if. If England fans went to wherever and heard God Save the Queen being booed like that, if they went to Ireland and heard it being booed like that, they'd, they'd, they'd be all kind of riled up and, oh, this is awful. I find it genuinely... Actually, I surprise myself with how, how offensive I find it. I think we need to be more sympathetic to those England fans who were booing the anthems because they had so much booing pent up inside them in preparation mm. for the taking of the knee. But the taking yeah. of the knee is only very, very brief. There isn't enough time for all of that vitriol to come out in one go. So you need to spread it a little bit more thinly. I was was watching that particular moment with a Scotland fan who said that they're not sure that they would allow God Save the Queen to not be booed, should it be, or or, or have an instinctive instinctive, uh, kind of feeling that they wanted to do it. So I I tried to reason... Uh, I tried to grapple with that in my mind and reason with it to try and think of the difference as to why I would be understanding of certain countries booing certain national anthems but i don't think uh england fans booing a german national anthem based on something that is at least one if not two generations removed from 90 percent of those people who are actually doing the booing i'm not entirely sure that's enough of a geopolitical reason to be uh to be clearing your throat and hollering a boo but it's it's not even that it's gen- that they that we're recording this before the semi-finals they will boo the danish anthem there's, there's, and do, I, they see, do, they, do they see it as some kind of support for the? T- do they do they dress it yes, up it's, as it's, yes. this is our passionate support of our country and our team? Is that we we said. Or? Can you remember after the after the the Raheem Sterling incident, racist abuse incident at Chelsea? Uh, we talked about that, and we talked about how it was at least a theory of mine that it was that Chelsea's fan or those Chelsea's fans' expression of their love for their club against a player in that instance who was a threat to them that they thought that their weapon their arsenal included the weapon of being racist towards that player because they felt that that was the most powerful and potent weapon to try and upset that player and therefore not have him as be be as potent against their team so if the ultimate expression of a an individual fan's tribalism support of their own team is to be racist towards an opposition player then is that not part of the same one a branch of the same tree where you are being tribalism in support your tribalism in support of your own country is to try and upset the one that is threatening yours by doing that so it is an expression of support and there are elements of geopolitical idiocy um based on the second world war obviously um but but I just don't think that washes. A bit of, uh, probably a bit of exceptionalism comes into it as well as tribalism, as though ours is the only anthem that deserves to be mm. treated with respect. And and by extension of that, I agree with what Rory was saying a moment ago, is I, I thought the, the reaction to it happening in the England-Germany game was slightly overbaked in that it didn't feel either unique to England games at this Euro, mm. nor unique to international football, you do experience it in all sorts of, of settings from football in all corners of the globe. I, I'd be inclined to say that the booing of Flower of Scotland, which, which 
personally annoyed me, although it was followed by the the hilarious booing of God Save the Queen. Um, I mean, th- th- this is this is like uber woke, and I don't want to rile Andrew Neil too much, but there's Sorry, a reason he's, that... he's taken a long, he's taken an ex- extended holiday. Rory was saying the um, it's just his channel's a disaster. <laughs> the um, the reason that lots of countries boo God Save the Queen is because we conquered them. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you can't separate that. But we- that's that's the point I was trying to make is that there are legitimate geopolitical reasons yeah. for making that protest, probably against England for, for example, yeah. Scotland or others. And in t- so, if there's uh, an issue in the Middle East, or if there's an issue in the Balkan states, as you you mentioned, Croatia, you mentioned Serbia and Albania, the, these are re- reasons, geopolitical reasons that genocide. You know, the, these are aspects that allow you, I would imagine, a slightly more solid platform upon which you you make your feelings known. And, and it does, it, Steve's right, it does happen, and you, we shouldn't be too kind of puritanical about it. But the one thing that, that has really interested me, and at some point I will probably commit this to print, although it is a Tarek Panjer idea, is when you when you go to England games. The, the shirts that you see the most are the away strip from Euro 96, the Gaza Mist kit, and the blue one that I associate with the World in Motion video. Do you know the one I mean? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the third kit one. in 1990, wasn't it, I think? And you see a lot of them. And it, there's a lot of kind of cosplaying that goes on with England fans. So you've, you, I was on the tube on the way to the Germany game, and there was lots, lots of people who, if I'm honest, didn't look like they paid attention in history in Stroll, where they were relatively recently singing 10 German bombers yeah. over and over again. And there's also a lot of people who seem to think that the national anthem has the word no surrender in it. Now, I mean, the troubles were, were 20 years ago now. There's a whole generation that's not been brought up dealing with this, with a, with a, a conflict in, in Northern Ireland who, who seem to be very angry about a, an, an independence movement, I, I need to phrase this carefully, that they will have had no experience of. Like they, the, the IRA has not been a major factor in British life for 20 years. And, you know, these, these, these young men invariably in their t- late teens, early 20s are singing no surrender. The situation's moved on a bit, lads, to be honest. The issue now is really Arlene Foster. Maybe, maybe that's who we're not surrendering to. The, <laughs> the, um, but I think when, people, when young, young people get together and to go on inland trips, there is a sort of semi-stag-do, semi-cosplay element where they, they are basically acting out what they think it is to be an England fan from what they've seen of videos of Marseille in 1998 and Charleroi in 2000. That's how they think England fans behave. So they go and behave like that. And it's that reason that you get these, this stupid thing where England fans conquer territory in foreign cities. And it's for that reason that you get this, the most ridiculous thing you watch any any other set of fans sing their national anthem and they stand and they sing. God Save the Queen is the only anthem that is sung with your arms spread out in front of you as if you are sort of attacking the people you're singing it at. They sing, England fans sing God Save the Queen at people. They don't just sing it. There's something very strange about what kind of the England... Being, being an England supporter for the day does to people. Uh, and it will be interesting, should England win the, the uh, European Championship and the next time we talk to you, they may well have done, um, there might be a conversation to be had about whether us as Englishmen, Rory half Englishmen, um, might actually resent that a little bit. But anyway, that is uh, to come. Um, the other gripe from the Euros is something that will delight Stephen. Uh, Here's Chris Lomax. Hi all, I've just turned on the Belgium against Portugal match and the commentary team surmised that VAR had had a huge influence on the outcome of the previous game that day, Netherlands against Czech Republic. I'm pretty sure that VAR didn't take over Matthias de Ligt's brain and force him to get sent off. So why did the team search for controversy and what was the surprise result? Why not just talk about the game? I suppose rules had an influence on the game is something of a waste of breath for them. Uh, I hope you're all safe. That's from Chris Lomax in Bolton. Yeah, so effectively, what that theory was, was that a a goal that contravened the laws of the game was not allowed to stand. I'm guessing that when, when you're talking about VAR controversy, that is normally what you actually mean. I, I did the, um, just again, the VAR and how it's how it's gone down in this tournament. I, I think it's been, the refereeing's been excellent. I think VAR's been incredible. I did the, the Finland-Russia game. Where Poyan Palo seemingly scored a, a great goal for Finland really early on, great cross, great header. So we go to town on it. VAR then looks at it and he is about half a yard offside. Half time, I got a text from someone saying, "I can't believe it. There's VAR again, ruining the game." Have you been directed to say how great VAR is? And I, I was going to say, "Hold on a minute." VAR was absolutely correct. He was offside. The goal should not stand no matter how good or bad it is or what the context is. But again, st- people still saying, I hate yeah. VAR, even when it gets it right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that it's terrible. And are you being directed to say it's great? 
And I was really, I, I didn't reply to it. I was absolutely furious. This is someone I know very well. And again, I thought I, I could go to town on this, but I thought, again, what is the point if people would send me a text to think that mm. I'm saying these things because I'm maybe I'm working for you away for an, and it, it clearly isn't true, but I, I, I have to say it. What does that say about my, how I do my job as well? When it's actually correct, I'm saying pat on the back. They've got it absolutely spot on. It's, it's a shame. It's a wonderful goal has been shorts off, but rightly so. We're being told to say that, or are we being told to say that? Again, just people's attitudes towards it, even when it's clearly correct, and it's been correct on so many occasions in this tournament, absolutely used absolutely brilliantly, still people want to kind of pull it to bits. It's driving me nuts. And, but that's part of the, the way that the, the anger towards VAR has taken over common sense, that that entire that text message was framed to you, Chinch, in the context of, well, we want goals, don't we? Yeah. And not that a an illegitimate goal was quite correctly ruled out through the using the benefit of the the technology that we now have available. Do you think, do you think they had this debate when they first introduced like linesmen? <laughs> yeah. do, do, do you think do you there's think linesmen be... ruining the game again by Let's... being in line with the last defender Uphold, but upholding the laws of the game, which we put in? Oh my god! In twenty oh. years' time, the generation who has not grown up. Uh, with anything other than VAR will be on that tube or going to an England-Germany game singing with their arms stretched out wide that they really f***ing hate VAR. Oh, no wow. surrender to VAR. <laughs> no oh. surrender to VAR. There was, um, another, now... there was another offside decision that was made on the field during the Euro. I can't remember exactly the game. And there was a lot of talk around VAR interfering with the game, even though the decision had been made on the field. Mm. Almost mm. as though the correct decision had been made on the field. Isn't it a shame that VAR couldn't have overruled the correct decision? Because what we really wanted was that goal to talk about. Quick sidebar, and I noticed this as a listener to last week's excellent podcast, um, which, like the other one that I've missed in my life, will probably be referred to as one of the nation's favourites. Oh, it was a classic. <laughs> it was absolutely classic. So top five, top no, five episode. Nobody, <laughs> nobody mentioned that, that Stephen pluralizes the euros as if they were french no steve's right though steve's I'm, I'm right. we are we are the only country that calls it the euros everyone else calls it the euro in their own language but you you always bring me to take me to task when i'm the only one doing a certain pronunciation of something that's based not on the english anglicization of it hugh what's your middle name <laughs> hugh lee ferris <laughs> What's the big supermarket in Britain called? Um, Tesco. Yeah, people call it Tesco's. It isn't called Tesco's. It's called Tesco. Well, I don't. And why do people call it John Lewis's? It's John well, Lewis. They, they shouldn't do that, oh, either. I know. But they, they do, John Lewis. Although, if you live in Manchester, you have to say Asdos. So, um, Asdos. Asdos. <laughs> Asdos. It's, um, it just, it's, it which is, is both the, a supermarket and a behavioural order. It's, it's, the European, it's the European Championship. Yeah. It is singular. Oh, it, it's yes. the Euro. Well, I, the only reason I, I uh, pluralise is because I talk about it as being a whole, as in all Euros ever that had ever. That yes, had... that would be correct. If you say Just it's England's to... best, if England's best performance at a Euros, yeah. that would be correct. Yeah. That's why. That's yeah. why no, I use it. It wouldn't. <laughs> it wouldn't because at a Euros, the a the, at the, the Euros, at the Euros, at the Euros, at the Euros. European Championship yeah, history at the Euros. England's it, best Euros performance. Yeah, it's it's, it's the Euro, yeah. and it's Tesco. Oh, is this another podcast? Have we started is another it? podcast here? <laughs> the grammar of football, that words and grammar. <laughs> That'll people will lap that up, won't they? If we oh, we the grammar of football. Right, back to back to the actual show. Uh, Karen Fleming writes from Canada in response to last week's pod about nostalgicizing, still not a word, Rory, about previous major tournaments. Dear Blanche, Sophia, Dorothy and Rose. Nice. Golden girls. Golden girls. Golden girls. Uh, count me in as another listener who found your excellent pod during lockdown and listened to all episodes. I started listening to current episodes for a couple of weeks and then decided to start from the beginning. She says, making the same point twice, which is excellent. I am sure that I do not fit the demographic of your audience as a chinch-aged Canadian woman, she says respectfully to both her chinch and aged. chinch. Is that, a, is that a positive or a negative? <laughs> positive, However, massively positive. I am an avid football fan and do not fit the typical demographic of that audience either. My interest started during the 1998 World Cup while in Montreal for work. All bars were showing the games and filled with fans of all countries. The atmosphere and enthusiasm was contagious and since Canada was not represented I began cheering for England. I have to admit that David Beckham was the deciding factor. Had Chinch not had a thigh injury I would imagine I that know, it would have been Eddie Hinchcliffe. It's hard to talk about the, uh, the, the World Cup in 98. It's too upsetting. I really only started watching <laughs> club competitions in 2010. <laughs> 
that's going to cut out the Zoom fee. Uh, so for me, international football was a gateway drug to club football in the Premier League. Eventually, I convinced my husband that we should attend the World Cup in Brazil. The first live match I ever saw was the unforgettable Netherlands-Spain match, where the Brazilian crowd booed every time Diego Costa touched the ball. Robin van Persie scored with the amazing diving header. And the Netherlands got revenge on the team that had beat them in the 2010 final. And I was, was there. And you were there. Did you there. see Karen? No, but maybe. Uh, that was just the on-field action, the passion of the Brazilian crowd, the intensity of the Spanish fans, and in particular the pre-game parade of the dancing and singing sea of Aranha hooked us both. Having beer poured on our section in the neutral area by unhappy Spanish fans while celebrating the Dutch score, their fourth goal was no deterrent and just added to the experience, she says naively. Since then, we've Is Karen the... sure that was beer? <laughs> yes, I hope it was. Uh, since then, yeah, World Cup, World Cups and Euros, plural, uh, one of the only things that uh, allow you to have beer in the stands, don't they? Uh, because... Yeah, but beer can and produce Heiser other Bush things insists. very quickly. Since then, we have attended the 2016 Euros, the 2015 Women's World Cup and Russia 2018, although I have yet to see a club game in person. I should say that I live in a city where the nearest MLS club is a thousand kilometres away. On the other hand, I do live very near both Bears and Buffaloes. With all that unnecessary background, here's my feedback on SPM 237 and the rose-tinted glasses applied to major tournaments. Do the facts that major tournaments are, A, still televised by mainstream television networks, and B, attract a festival atmosphere of communal watching, mean that international football, like me, acts as a gateway drug for new fans. That is from Karen Fleming, who's in Calgary. P.S. While watching Belgium against Russia on the Canadian broadcaster TSN, the local host introduced the commentary team for the second half as Peter Drury and Andy Townsend. As soon as I heard a familiar voice, I knew it was a different Andy. Without access to Sky Sports, this was the first time I'd heard this giant of co-commentary, your very chunch. Which which game was it? Sorry? Belgium against Russia, is that you? Oh, an absolute blinder. Absolute blinder in that one. We'll come to answer that in just a moment, if you wouldn't mind, because I have a couple of appendices. Uh, Graham Stevens says, Dear Nebuchadnezzar, Jeroboam, Magnum, and Half Bottle. Oh, that's completely (laughs) unfair. Having been born in Scotland in 1978, which was the year we were supposed to win the World Cup, my first tournament memories of Gordon Strachan trying to jump the advertising board after scoring against West Germany in Mexico 86, and the Esso coin collection for Italia 90, second only to the Sainsbury's coin collection of 1998. I agree that the previous joy of tournament football was seeing players whom we hadn't had the chance to see before, and that this has been eroded by the current 24-hour worldwide access to football online. Has there really been a player who has stood out in this tournament as a new name? The only one I can think of is Patrick Schick, but that may be down to my own ignorance. For me, one of the unique things about tournament football is the wall-to-wall coverage, when we are treated to day after day of football. This year's tournament comes on the back of a season where we had had daily access to league football on the TV, and so that feeling of, isn't it great that there's another game on, and I will watch every kick has been replaced by apathy you really can get too much of a good thing so i see this as being the tournament that was just a bit meh but you will probably disagree if england go on to win it as a scotsman the only upside to that is that we won't have to listen to tired old references to 66 anymore uh, kind regards graham and briefly from shane thomas hello carabao cup worthington cup coca-cola cup and anglo-italian cup <laughs> um, and also he puts in parentheses new baby Bodie which immediately gets him on the show. After hearing your wistful recollections of past international tournaments, it made me realise how someone's first tournament can lock in certain assumptions about football, which gets disproved once you get a little older. Like most of you, Italia 90 was my first tournament, and I remember rushing home from school to watch Cameroon against Argentina in the opening game because I had no frame of reference. A lot of what happened in that game and the rest of the competition felt like what football must be usually like. So Cameroon winning didn't register to me as a seismic shock. Not knowing much about either side, save for Maradona, I just assumed that Cameroon were a really good team and continued to think that as they made their way through the competition. It was only years later that I realised that England had an easy quarterfinal against them. Personally, I was terrified that England would, would lose. After all, Cameroon beat the reigning holders. They had Roger Mila. Winning an extra time felt to me as one of England's greatest ever performances. After all, we beat Cameroon, the mighty Cameroon. Will kids whose first tournament is Euro 2020 come away thinking that Patrick Schick is maybe the world's best striker? He really is getting a lot of attention. It's interesting how guileless and innocent the football fan is at the beginning. That is from Shane Thomas and reflections on SPM 237. I think that a lot of that impact has been negated by video games. I think that's the way that most kids interact mm-hmm. with. So I, I tweeted something about Mislav Orsic, the, the Croatian lad who scored the hatchery against Spurs and then came on against the Spanish and kind of turned that game a little bit. Um, he's 20, he, Orsic's had a really weird career. Like he, he's 28, he's playing at Dinamo Zagreb. 
but he spent kind of five, six years in Korea and Japan, or Korea and China, which is unusual for a European player, especially in a country like Croatia, where there's a fairly efficient pipeline taking anyone with even an iota of talent to one of the major European leagues. And someone replied to me and said, that the strange thing with Orsic is that people who play, and Steve, I'm going to rely on you here, foot FIFA Ultimate Team, is that a thing? I don't oh, know yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I mean, so obviously, I don't... I, I don't have a huge amount of time for it myself, but I'm, I'm aware of it as an option on the video game. So I, I don't really understand what it is. Do you kind of use your parents' money to buy players and then add them to your team and then play with that team against your friends' teams? All, all I know is I've had to unlink my credit card from my PlayStation <laughs> account just to make sure that such things don't happen. Yeah, so yes, it's an element of fantasy football. You 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 buy the players, you upgrade them, and then then that is your team that you play against others online. Right. So all such apparently is very cheap, presumably not to parents, but on the game he's I think he's like an eighty six on the game, which I presume costs a certain amount of money, and but he's cheap because he's he's mislap all such and no one's, no one's heard of him. So this this person I can't remember who it was said that the strange thing is that that people who play foot FIFA Ultimate Team yeah. are much more aware of Mislav Orsic than the general football watching public. And I think that is a is a is quite a, a neat example that people come to football through video games and therefore Patrick Schick, although he's had a relatively high profile career at Roma and Sampdoria and, and Leipzig and now Leverkusen, isn't a household name to people who generally watch football, but to vid, to people who've come to football through FIFA, which is how the vast majority of people now come to football, or is at least part of their football, their early football experience, they will know who Patrick Schick is and they will have basically, to be honest, quite accurate opinions on what he's good at and what he's not good at. What's fascinating is what you've done there, Rory, is you've drawn together those three emails rather beautifully. And if I could add two pennies worth to your excellent conversation, definitely top five, uh, conversation from last week, uh, I would say that my gateway drug into football was international tournaments because of the stickers that I collected. And then thereafter, my gateway into domestic football was the stickers that I collected because I had done so for the World Cup in 1986. So my, my knowledge of players, what they look like, my my appreciation of their mystery, relatively speaking, was because I only had this little sticker of them. And then if I were to, to ever see them on the television, obviously that would be incredibly exciting. So you mentioned stickers last week. I just wanted to add in two pennies worth of stickers. Absolutely. I had the Italian 90 sticker book, uh, but within, in the middle of it, I don't know why, there was a, a, it was all laid out. So every two pages looked like a football pitch. And that so obviously with the teams, you kind of put the players in their relative, in their rough rough position that didn't quite hold um but then in the middle was a football pitch and it was just lots of club badges that you had to collect and they were all shinies and i remember that being the thing that really kind of captivated me was was the fact that like napoli's was just a giant n like all <laughs> all we need is a massive n and then everyone will know who we are and there was like fire nords and it all seemed so sort of exotic that stickers will still be a factor and, and the first email i think is right that the carnival it's the fact that it's broadcast on on normal TV is really important. The fact that there's nothing else on, there's nothing nothing else to distract you, and that it's on all the time. In that first two weeks, the fact there's three games a day makes it kind of all-encompassing, and I think that's really important for getting people in. So it may be that, although this won't be the, the way that, that kids first come to football is, is through... And I suppose the other thing is there's games, at, there's games before bedtime. Do you know what I mean? If you're... If you're a kid and you, you you can suddenly watch football at, at two o'clock and five o'clock in the afternoon, then that then that's then that's a massive thing. Um, it won't be the way they necessarily come to football first, but it might be the thing that really kind of gets their gets their juices flowing. I suppose. How? Let's so a quick question. How how young are kids when they first start playing kind of football computer? Are we talking kind of seven eight years old? Is that how how young do they come to it? Yeah, yeah. My two probably six six or seven when they first started playing FIFA. Mm. It's, it, it, the controls are a lot more complicated on FIFA mm. now than they were when we were younger. So the sort of the, the dexterity takes a little bit longer. So the actual pl- the playing of those games, where you're, but do you still obviously? If I, I never went through all this. So do you construct a team and pick your players and then play. But football managers, where you construct a team and it plays for you. So that's are they two. So kids that are playing like football manager, where you you will learn a lot because you're looking at prices and getting players from all around the world. So your knowledge then, even at a very young age of world football, will be enhanced through playing something like football manager. Yeah, is that how yeah. it works? And, and the yeah. funny thing is, is that everything that I as a kid learned from football manager, FIFA is now so much more advanced and developed from the time that I played when I was a kid and, and, and Stephen and Rory too. 
is that you are almost getting as much information, not quite the same because of it's, it's different interface and you're doing different things. But in principle, you are being introduced to almost as much via FIFA currently as you were back then with Football Manager. So you know a lot more. Very different. Yeah, yeah. You know a lot more about the players then from all over. But still, the the watching the spectacle and the colour and the the sounds, still watching a game can really hook kids in. So they might have a lot of information about players from all over the world, but still watching tournaments. Though that first tournament you watch yeah. can still be again that that kind of gateway to, to it's watch. It's marrying football. up what you've seen yeah. on the computer with yeah. reality. When you so see, where stickers you did have, that basically for you. Yes, or, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So when you have seen either an inanimate representation in a sticker or a uh, a manufactured artificial representation on a computer game, when you see that person in reality live playing that game that you are not simulating it's real life taking over you don't know what's going to happen that that the, the ability to marry those two things up are very i think for a kid very exciting because yeah. they were for me with the flip side that i'm not sure and this is this sounds very much old man yells at cloud but i i do wonder how much computer games have affected kind of kids ability to accept how long football matches last and that's that's something that Andrea Agnelli is big on, and he, as we all know, is a visionary. But there's a, there is a germ of a point there that if you're a kid who's used to having a result from a football match in ten minutes, then the idea that it might last ninety and actually be a bit shit is probably not that satisfying. And I think that's where the where, where there is a slight danger. Have your have your boys been watching the Euro, Steve? In all, have they been enduring every game? throughout the game no, they, they drift in and out of it they yeah. they sit and watch chunks and then we'll wander off Whereas, the older one of the two watches but whilst also doing something else that might just be flicking through a sticker album or looking at his match of the day magazine i mean we do that now we do that with our phones don't we yeah no, that's yeah, true. Exactly. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but, but when but when i when i was eight watching italian 90 or even you know 12 watching usa 94 you were watching you watched the entire game you just sat and watched the game. Yeah, I don't think... Yeah, he de definitely not... Current 10-year-old Rory is not anything like 8-year-old Rory was back in 1990. Yeah. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that my return has once again instilled great discipline in the group and uh, we are very much rattled through our correspondence section to get on to the main part of our podcast. <laughs> it's it's, it's all right, Hugh, just, Hugh, just... This bit's going to be really quick because I'm right. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, correspondence, by the way, of any kind... Uh, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. That may well apply to what is to follow. Of course, earlier, I was very much pulling your collective legs. The 32 team euros, euro, is without doubt a thing created in the mind of Roderick Sinclair Tarquin-Smith. In a recent newsletter, just in case there are people who like us but not him, uh, and in order to avoid the possibility that he's already forgotten the nuances of his own format, Rory wrote this. For the euros to expand, he says pluralizing because that's mm -hmm. allowed something would have to give namely the laborious and predictable process of qualifying rather than forcing the major nations to jump through hoops for two years before reaching the finals anyway it would make more sense to guarantee each of them a place for the sake of appearances perhaps that could be dressed up as a spot for all those nations that have won a major tournament italy germany france england spain the netherlands portugal greece and denmark russia and the czech republic could be included too despite technically winning the euros in another life and under another name they would be joined by the five highest ranked teams not to have won an honour, currently Belgium, Switzerland, Croatia, Wales and Sweden. Those 16 teams would be exempt from qualification, but rather than stand idle for two years, they would be drafted into a version of UEFA's successful Nations League concept. Four divisions of four teams with the winners of each playing in a biennial week-long tournament as they do now. The remaining 39 teams in UEFA's ranks, meanwhile, would be arranged into seven qualifying groups of five teams, plus one group. And, of yeah, even... Sorry. I'm reading your words, Rory. Why do you not? Why do you not trust the fact <laughs> because, that you because, have clarified your own words? Because lots of people missed that last clause and said, "Oh, there's only seven groups. That doesn't work." But it does. Oh, it's a clause, is it? <laughs> a clause oh, of a sentence. A clause. Okay. Rory, I it's have a not. Santa Claus. It's a gift to us all. <laughs> Rory, I, I have not. Unlike a lot of our correspondents, I have not done any editing of the the, the format that you have presented thus far. Uh, I'm also doing it very slowly so that Chinch, who is reading or hearing this for the first time, uh, you're not doing in... like Jeff Harding reads the original. You're not abridging what I'm Rory abridging. said. You're actually reading it in full, are you? Uh, so the top two in each of those eight groups, uh, I've added something there, would earn a place at the Euros. They too would benefit from one of the lessons that should have been learned from the Nations League, that games between closely matched countries 
countries are better than an endless succession of blowouts. There is, though, one twist to this plan. Over the last couple of months, soccer has made it abundantly clear that it does not have much truck with entrenched status quos. It is integral to the sport's identity that nothing should ever be closed. I don't know if that was supposed to be as sarcastic as I said it. That should apply to the Euros, too. These 16 automatic qualifiers should not be granted that status in perpetuity. So instead, all of these precious spaces would be open, refreshed every four years. The 16 teams that made the knockouts of the Euros would be the 16 teams that are assured entry into the next tournament. So if the Italians fall at the group stage, ousted by Serbia in one year, fine, no problem. They have to qualify next time. Here, in a nutshell, rather than in a monologue, we have the how. But today is a chance to talk about the why. If the 16 team euros was good enough for everyone to complain about it being increased 24, why, even if you do like the idea outlined above, do we need it to be expanded further? And also, and we start with this question to Tarek's muse, Rory, is it better than your Ryder Cup of football idea? Nothing is better than my Ryder Cup of football idea. My Ryder Cup of football idea is the greatest idea in history. Well, that, that context has now been provided. Thank you. So, so what I would say about this is that sometimes it's Thursday morning and some of us have a, have a, have a column to write and don't really have anything to say. So we invent <laughs> competitions because that is cheap and easy content. And so a couple of Thursday mornings ago, me, me and Tarek have been having a conversation about it. And basically the, the, the thing we were discussing was the fact that the this has been a great tournament and the format's really worked, but there is a slight kind of integrity issue in that um, the groups aren't discreet, to borrow a term from Jonathan Wilson, that, if, that finishing third in one group with with a specific level of difficulty is only is only an achievement or a non-achievement depending on what happens in the other groups which have different levels of, di of difficulty so you can get three points in Denmark's group with Russia and Finland and go through but you can get three points in in a, in a much more difficult group and go out and that's not really fair because you're reliant on so for example the the reason that Ukraine got through was because Slovakia shipped five to the Spanish, if the Slovaks had lost that, if it had just been like, right, we're 1-0 down, but we'll still go through, wouldn't have shut up shop. The Slovaks would have been through and the Ukrainians wouldn't have made the quarterfinal. That, that isn't ideal. It's, it lent drama and it wasn't, it wasn't unattractive in the way that it all played out, but it, it, that's not ideal. So the way to solve that is either to go 16 or 32, because then you have discrete groups within, within, with, within the competition. And that's where I started with. And to be honest, when I started writing it, I kind of thought, okay, this it was basically like a thought exercise. Like, can I make this work? Is it interesting? How will people respond? And fortunately for me, it turned out that as soon as people started challenging my logic, I decided that I was completely right and ineffable and should not be challenged in any way. And that's because I think the 32 team format solves a much bigger problem. I don't, the finals would, would not be better or worse. They would be roughly the same because the quality would be the same. There's enough quality within Europe that you could put Serbia and Norway and Romania in and they wouldn't, they wouldn't disgrace the competition any more than Hungary or Scotland or, I don't know, France. And they'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd all be... France have truly disgraced the competition this time around. There's, there's, no, there's, you know, there's no reason to believe that if Norway were in, this fi in, 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 Euro, in Euro 2020, that Norway couldn't have made the last 16 or the quarterfinals. They could. If Ukraine could do it, then Norway could. No question. <laughs> You've knocked Chinch off his perch. So horrified exactly. by it that he's just knocked his microphone over. Rory, I have peer-reviewed your piece, mm -hmm. and I do have some thoughts. But it, it, in the main, it's a fairly solid argument. So what were people's... But there was... An, let, let's describe it as plenty of feedback. Honestly. There was plenty of feedback. What, what were and, people's main issues with it? Bit of a holdover from last week there, Stephen. Some excellent presenting. Oh, sorry. Guiding Rory into the next section of his... Uh... It's, it's just a legacy from a top five all-time episode. <laughs> So there, there were, thank you, Stephen, it's nice to have a competent host. There, there were three broad, broad areas of, of feedback, in inverted commas, one of which was my fault. So first of all, people objected to kind of the close, the idea of it being a closed shop, that, you know, there being legacy places, which I can solve very easily. You get rid of that idea and the 16 teams who are exempt from qualifying next time are the 16 and the last 16 this time. So we would effectively, if we were going to institute it for 2024, you would take the 16 teams who made the, the round of 16 in Euro 2020 and you would say, right, you don't have to qualify. That is not being exempt from qualifying. That is already having qualified by virtue Pre -pre -qualifying. of... Pre-qualifying. It's, it's just a different, for, it's a different way of qualifying. You, you still had to qualify. You've had to get to the last 16. You'll hate so this, Rory, but that's like golf. Yeah. 
It's like you, you've won the Masters, so you qualify for the Masters until you can no longer walk around the course. Or yeah. you're in the top however many of the yeah, Masters yeah. and you come back the next year. Yes, yes. Yeah, fine. So that, 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 is a, that is a principle that exists with a sports in precedent. So that's, that's fine. So that's how you choose those 16. It's not a closed shop. It's just qualifications through a different format. The, the other main objection was that, that going to 32 is exacerbating, I said that weird, is exacerbating this, this issue of everything being too big and we should just go back to 16. Now, initially, my response, my response to that was that it's admirable and I agree, but it's not going to happen. So there's no point harping on about it. The, you know, the Premier League's not going to come down to 10 teams. The Champions League's not going to go back to straight knockout. And that to an extent, harping on about that is, is not only kind of wasting your own time, it, it's, it spoils the conversation because you, you're just wasting time asking for, asking for the impossible. Football's not going to get smaller. There's no, there's no, there is no way that is going to happen. It's not, it's not actually in anybody's interest. And relative then, to the expanded 40 and 48 team World Cup, the Euros sits in relative kind of size to yeah. that. So you, you, you can't have 32 and 32 because that kind of feels a bit weird. But if the World Cup's getting bigger, then the Euros being 32 teams is a relative understanding. But, but, the, but there are two more compelling cases, two more compelling reasons for not going back to 16, which are Europe itself is bigger that when the 16 team format was drawn up, Europe didn't have as many countries in it. And the second one is that when it's a 16 team tournament, it is effectively a closed shop because you have the qualifying process in which, all right, maybe occasionally Holland or England or Italy will miss out, but the vast majority of the big countries get through and they take up basically 10 of the slots. So you, you are then asking 43 other countries to try and squeeze into six spots and that's not that's not enough to maintain interest across the rest of the continent so having a 16 team tournament with a 50 55 team uefa is is too small it, if you want there to be a degree of variety and mystery and for there to be space for for teams like denmark to suddenly kind of arrive at a major tournament and, and be an, an unexpected force then you need to have a degree of kind of elastic within the structure of the tour a structure of the tournament so initially i was i was i was kind of thinking we can't go back to 16 because we're not gonna, we're not going to go back to 16 so there's no point worrying about it but now i think we shouldn't go back to 16 there is no it, it, that is too small for the way european football is the other thing that people objected to was that there were too many there, that with 32 or 55 qualifying there's too many teams qualifying that it, it's not it is not a uh a, ref a reflection of the very best of Europe. That to me is, is I mean, I, I get that. I kind of think that's, that's fair enough that, that you kind of want to boil it down. But at the same time, it's all part of the same tournament. The qualifying is the same, is part of the, of the broader European championship. They're all in it. All you're doing is you're shifting around when they, when they are eliminated from it. You, you don't get like four winners. You just get one winner. There's just, there's more games in the, in the finals not even for each team, each team plays the same number of games and fewer games in qualifying. That's how it, that's the balance. You're just shifting the balance a little bit and allowing more people to take part in the, in the, in the, in the main event rather than the kind of the, the foreplay. The main advantage for this plan is, is not for the finals. The finals would be, would be roughly as good as they are now. They wouldn't, they wouldn't change in any noticeable way. What it does is it massively improves qualifying. And the reason, I've become very passionate about this, the reason it improves qualifying is just it gets rid of the reliance on the FIFA rankings, which are total nonsense. Now, now Chinch uh, looks like he's been weathered by these particular footballing wins. Um, I've, been warm, I've been warmed by the warm footballing wins. It's excellent stuff, this. Do, do, it. do, do, it. do you like that idea? Because as an international footballer of renown and repute... Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm assuming that, that qualification games had significance enough to you, but didn't necessarily... Because that's all I was going to play. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> I would never get into the, uh, the, relative, the squad relative... for the final. So I had to, again, yes, I had to get my international football where I could. Relative yes. to England nil, Saudi Arabia nil, anyway. Oh, the big one. But if, for, for clearing that out, if you like, for certain players of certain countries who are probably most likely used to a higher standard of football and taking out those, as Rory says in his piece, blowouts, is there value to a footballer of having... having more competition within those spaces between major finals does it does it depend on who you're playing for do you feel give me an example well if you're a 
North Macedonian footballer or a Norwegian footballer, your chances of... Is, is it all about getting to the finals? Is, is that ultimately what these countries are looking... Or, take, as Roy said, taking part in the competition? Something I never really thought about. The qualifying is the competition, isn't it, as well? You yeah. tend to think, well, the finals is, is, is the European Championship. Uh, but maybe, again, for these... You keep saying lesser nations, which is basically what they are in, terms of, in footballing terms... But the, the qualifying for them when they get the opportunity to play the big that that is in essence in essence their finals tournament. So again, would you really? I don't, I don't know. But if it's rare, it? if it's rare, Chinch, if you think you, you mentioned North Macedonia yeah. or Norway, if it's rare yeah. to reach a finals, yes, the, the chances of reaching the finals will be increased just because of the numbers who qualify. But also the sense of the the path towards that will have a greater significance because you are qualifying to be part of the European Championship in its. And, and the qualifying tournament to do that would have greater significance because you'd have more chance of being successful in it. Well, also, you'd be playing teams that were around your level. So if you're, we, I think we think in this country too much about what qualifying looks like for a major nation yes. in, in a footballing yeah. sense. We're too concerned with, oh, international breaks are boring. Does England win 3-0? What a terrible life that England continually win games 3-0. Whereas... And then we, we assume that whenever you talk about anybody else, that you actually mean San Marino. And you, oh, you're going to let all these terrible countries into the finals. They're all going to be awful. But the vast majority of countries in Europe are Norway and Hungary and Bulgaria and Romania. And they're sort of OK. That's only actually four out of 55. <laughs> uh, Troy, that's not a vast majority of them. More, more for, very, very good, Stephen. But there are... All right, fine. The, the no, no, go on. Go on, there, listen. There are... Finish hey, he's, not, he's not such a great presenter now, is he, Rory? No, I'm... I'm <laughs> yeah, miss, changing your tune. Missed you last week. <laughs> the, um, there are eight or nine major countries who get to most finals, and there are eight or nine very small kind of proper minnows, Andorra and Gibraltar and Liechtenstein and Luxembourg, to be fair, not even Luxembourg List them, anymore. list them. <laughs> Andorra, San Marino, Gibraltar, Liechtenstein... The Pharaohs, maybe, although they're all right at the moment as well. Luxembourg, historically. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Moldova, yeah. Maybe Moldova, yeah. Everybody, everybody else is, is, in, is in that big middle. And th those countries, at the moment, I think, suffer because they, they are put into a qualification system whereby one of the spots in their group is basically taken because Germany are going to qualify. Spain are going to qualify. They're going to get two or three blowouts against against San Marino and, and Andorra, but they're probably not going to go anywhere. They're kind of trapped in this system because they are defined by the rankings. That is what sets their fate. Yeah. So there's this impression that that qualification is completely fair and everyone starts starts, which means that because Hungary are in the Euro and Norway aren't, that Hungary are therefore better than Norway. That's not how it works. How it works is that Norway have been set a different level of challenge because of their performance 10 years ago which means they've got fewer points in the fifa rankings and they're or they're coming from a lower base which means that they, they were the fourth seeds in their group whereas hungary they had they got an easy group in 2012 or whatever uh, uh, were third seeds which gave them a chance of qualifying plus the stupidity of the nation's lead system which which is really messy which is how north north, north macedonia got there they everything is set by the fifa rankings which are basically completely artificial I know, I know I probably shouldn't have poked the bear before observations. Something that you mentioned in your piece, Rory, which you, I, I think you're absolutely right about, was the, the, the benefit of the, the Nations League has been those nations playing each other more consistently mm. at, at a level that is more comfortable for them. I guess the slight issue with, with qualifying as you, as you mapped it out is that unfortunately... You know, Serbia, for example, to pick that team that sits just outside the top 16 nations at the moment in terms of the, 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 the rankings in Europe, are still going to obliterate the likes of the Pharaohs, San Marino, Liechtenstein, that you're still going to have, even though they are not the mismatches quite of Belgium against the Pharaohs, that the likes of Serbia, Norway, those kind of nations are still so much stronger than the Minnows that the, the minnows might end up reverting to how we've seen them in qualifying, which is effectively go into their shell. It's damage limitation against the stronger nations, and it almost sets a precedent that they are then 
unable to galvanise themselves for that maybe one or two games in every qualifying that they have a chance of succeeding in. Whereas the Nations League, and I'll give you a couple of examples. The first of them is Hungary, who have surged up through the rankings as a consequence of first doing very well in the third tier and then subsequently surprising everybody by finishing top of their group in the second tier. And they will be a top tier Nations League side next time that competition comes around. The other one that I thought really attacked it with a lot of vigour for which they deserve great credit was Luxembourg, Mm. who clearly decided this is our opportunity to drag ourselves out of the basement. And I, I did a lot of their games in the initial Nations League, and they were in the same group as Moldova, who took the very opposite approach. They seemed to go very conservative and end up performing as they normally would do in qualifying. Whereas Luxembourg were like, no, no, this is our opportunity. We're going to go for it. And suddenly they were playing well above a level that we had seen from them in the past. And I suppose my concern is that, that even with a slightly reduced qualifying without them having that Nations League mm-hmm. opportunity, they, they're not going to have that chance once every two years to play the other teams immediately. Should, we be, should we be determining the, the grand plan, though, by the very, very smallest Yes, t- because, it's, because a lot of what Rory has talked about is, is expansion and the progress for those nations. And, mm-hmm. and, it's, and that progress is, if you're progressing from 16 to 32... You can't just stop there. You have to give the sides outside the 32. The other couple of things I wondered whether there was some wiggle room with is that the thing that I don't like about this this Eurogroup stage is it feels to me that each stage of competition should eradicate half of the nations. And that's the problem with this third-place qualifier or six of the third-place finishes in the group going through is you start with 24 and you only lose eight after an entire group stage campaign. Semi-final, you lose two teams, you've got the final. Quarterfinal, you lose half your teams, semi-final. It's nonsensical that in a knockout stage, you lose half the teams every time you play a round of matches. Yet in the group stage, you don't. And Mm. in terms of this, in qualifying, you don't because three-fifths of teams would be at the Euro if you had 32. Why are we so anchored to the idea that the first stage of a major competition has to be a group stage? Could you have a 24 or 32 team Euro in which the first stage is a knockout? Say, for example, you have 12 automatic qualifiers for the group stage and four places that are up for grabs from a pre-group stage knockout. But that's a World Cup idea, isn't it? That's what they want to do with the 48-team World Cup or a 40-team World Cup. You would effectively take that, that playoff round of matches that you'd normally get at the start of spring or in autumn ahead of a major championship and bring it into the beginning of the major championship. And you would add that layer of jeopardy and uncertainty that those third place group stage finishers provide us with that, that, that Finland example that, that you gave in your piece, mm. Rory, is that, well, hang on a second. We know who 12 of the teams are going to be there for the group stage. But what about this idea that the other four will come from eight or 16 playoff mm-hmm. qualified nations and that you'd have a a mini knockout in the host nation ahead of mm-hmm. the group stage starting then you've managed to boil it down you lose you're losing half of your teams along the way and you're boiling it down to a group stage after which you can lose another half of your team. This is why I need to talk to Steve and not Tarek. Tarek is a yes man. He would have just <laughs> said Yes, Rory. Whatever you reckon, Rory. I'm really tired of you bringing this up with me, Rory. Yeah, I'm not you calling me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I, I totally agree with Rory that expanding from 24 to 32 is not going to diminish the quality of the of the Euro because those other eight teams that you would add are very similar to the eight yeah. in, in quality to the eight that have been expanded from 16 to 24. My main concern would, with it would be that if you were having three fifths of UEFA nations qualifying for euro fifa would be rubbing their hands at the idea of a 128 team world cup yeah i think so i think that that is that's definitely a valid point um although i I quite like the point that hugh makes that that it just brings the euro the size of the euro into line with the size of the world cup and the 48 team world cup is something we will discuss 
at a later date, I suspect. The, we'll I, just I say lots of the same things about yeah. that that we, we, we'll just call it a new podcast. The, that's the easiest way, Steve. It's the easiest way. The, um, I quite like the, the idea of a, of a preliminary knockout round. I think that would, that would add a little bit of immediate tension. Um, you could even, if you didn't want to waste team's time, you could even do it over two legs. That wouldn't necessarily be a disaster. Um, well, the, if, you had, if you had eight teams in that preliminary knockout, then it, you, you'd have, have it at two legs. If it was 16 teams, then it would probably be straight one Straight knockout, two rounds, yeah. 16 yeah. down to eight, down to the four, four that joined the group. The one thing I'd say about the Nations League, and you're completely right, that, that teams have used that to kind of not game their, their rankings place, but to, to change their fate. And ultimately, I mean, we sort of laugh about the Strats not qualifying for a major tournament, but that's because every time you don't qualify for a major tournament, it gets harder to qualify for the next major tournament. That's why Slovakia make major tournaments because they have done relatively they did relatively well 10 12 years ago which means that they are coming from a relatively high base in the fifa rankings which means that they they get decent draws that that would be a loss there's no there's no two ways about that there's no that there would be this isn't a perfect plan it's not that there's no such thing as a as a drawback um the one thing i would say is that if you're looks if you take the example of luxembourg and you were placed in a five-team qualifying group with where serbia was the biggest team and you maybe had Serbia, Bulgaria, Luxembourg, I don't know, Moldova and I don't know, Latvia, you would stand a chance of finishing second. In theory, you would, you would, you would. More of a it. chance of finishing second than you would do if you're in a group of five and the seedings were including the big teams. Where well, you, if you took on to that group, because it's a group of six now, you took on Germany. In a group of Germany, Serbia, Tur- Serbia, whoever else I said, Bulgaria, Luxembourg, Moldova and Estonia or Latvia, Luxembourg are not qualifying. It's not possible. Whereas if you take the top seed out, yeah. but say the, the top two get through, you still get, certainly, you, I, I would say you get a chance of qualifying. It might, it wouldn't, they, they would still get, you know, yeah, you're right. Ultimately, Serbia would still smash a couple of teams, four or five nil. The, and that wouldn't be ideal. And you would have lost that nation's lead route. The, the flip side is that it would only take, yeah, Bulgaria slipping up for Luxembourg to suddenly be, be in with a chance of qualifying. And also they'd still have enough games against teams around them that they could improve their ranking points. Although I'd be, I'd be personally inclined to get rid of the ranking system as it pertains to Europe entirely. I suppose the, the, the issue, what you'd have to consider is a, just a quick flick through the rankings there is, is that there'd have to be some kind of seeding. It couldn't be an open draw for the group. No, no, no. no. And, and probably Luxembourg, and you, you've probably named three team, three nations there, Rory, who would be in the bottom two seeding groups. So that, 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 that group, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 Serbia and Bulgaria being in, in the same group sounds about right in terms of they'd be the top two seeds the idea that you'd then have luxembourg and latvia and the pharaohs that that would that would be two bottom head. yeah so so that in the group you've just described luxembourg would stand a, a chance, chance. But, yeah, 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 but the, the, yeah the likelihood is that they would still be the fourth seed in a group of five so they'd still have to have a remarkable overplaying of their level during the course of qualifying to finish in those top two. And, uh, and the, the reason that they've edged up the ranking is because mm. they've, they've been, you know, they, they have made, taken advantage of the Nations League formats to, to move themselves upwards. We are a little amongst the weeds of Luxembourg's. Yeah, yeah, let, sorry, yeah, by all means, get rid of all that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get rid of it, Stephen. It's excellent. I'm just drawing it to a close. The, the final point I want to make is to, to, to make a wider context of it all is that the, the reason that things happen in football is because of television contracts. Stephen and Chinch have both been involved in the Nations League and qualifying for the World Feed. Chinch is involved in this current tournament for the World Feed. So they are part of that televisual structure if you give alexander sheffer and your mate uh, rory a call and mm-hmm. say here's my plan would his immediate thought be to can i sell this with the same amount of money to broadcasters in that you are taking out you are, you are separating an elite element the the nations league and the finals and you are kind of ripping asunder the whilst might be entertaining on a aesthetic level you are saying that that qualifying is not going to be really interesting for anybody outside of the countries involved. Is is there an issue with selling the television rights for a, for a, for a qualifying tournament, for example, that doesn't have Belgium, England, mm. Germany, Portugal, 
scattered into it so that at least if it is Portugal against Luxembourg or um, England against Albania, you still have a large neutral audience tuning in. Yeah, that's a good point. That, I, I, that's a really good point. I suspect that having the expanded finals plus the Nations League plus the, the kind of redolent interest. So you're still talking about major countries, you know, there's still, you know, there's Poland and, yeah, Albania and Turkey potentially all being involved in that in that qualification. It's not like there would be no interest in those countries. That might balance out, it might not, I'm not sure. But yes, that is a good point and that is what would ultimately define it is can UEFA sell it for as much money or probably ideally more money than they'd sell the current status quo. The solution to that would be to run the two formats in tandem and sell it as a, a a whole thing. I buy one, get one free. A whole concept. <laughs> so you would still get the England versus Belgium games, mm. and and the quality and the quality. So you'd have that sort of like that that revamped elite Nations League concept that ran alongside more traditional qualifying, and it would all fall under the same umbrella do and it, it would be sold as, sold as such. Yeah, do it like the Champions League nights and just have a, a qualification game at 5.55 and then a, a Nations League game at 8 o'clock and you can, you can televise both. Or in fact, you're told that you have to televise both. Um, Rory, excellent work. Thank you. Thank Pass you. on our regards to Tarek and say um, for the 80% of everything that you have put to us today, uh, we appreciate his efforts. Uh, it is now time for Nevermind Jack and Rory. What a soccer story. This is an Andy Tells tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed as he positions his microphone. Sorry, it's the microphone again there but <laughs> in a rather declamatory way into the center of his screen so that he can tell us his story just think about how i get onto this after after such top intellectual soccer chat my, my role really on the podcast is to bring everything crashing back down to earth isn't it so i think what i'm going to talk about here is very probably going to do that i've always had a problem <laughs> in my life and certainly in my footballing career with the um the width of my pelvis You've probably heard these words before, but when your shoulders are as wide as your hips, it can cause a problem in so many areas. Firstly, physically, being such a hard kicker of the ball with my left foot, uh, a lot of players do have a problem with kind of hernias and kind of tummy problems, you know, just above the, the general area. And I had a bit of a pain <laughs> at one point. I was doing a lot of kicking of a football. I was a professional sportsman. And I, I went to see a, a specialist because I thought, oh, I must have a, you know, everyone has, everyone has hernias. This is the injury you get. Um, so I went to see this this specialist, and obviously they do all the X-rays and all the fiddling about, which you know is the, is the term for a specialist doing his job with his fingers. And um, he, uh, I mean, I'm sure I didn't just dream this. I'm sure he said to me, looking at your symphysis pubis, which is the cartilaginous mm. connection between the the pelvic bits. He said, "Have you ever given birth?" <laughs> said. Um, no, I don't think I have. No, I probably would remember that. Because normally that's what happens. Hugh, you'll be well aware of this, about how a, a pelvis has to expand to allow the head of a child to pass through. And the symphysis pubis, again, there's signs there that this has happened. And he just said, there's a lot of chafing. There's a lot of stuff been going on there. And I said, well, I don't think it's from giving birth. I think it's, I, I did play sport from a very young age, probably two and a half. I was competing at the very top level in the back garden. So maybe I've overdone it in terms of the symphysis. But I think the width of my hips then caused a problem when I went onto the, into the international arena. And I was, um, there's this, been this programme on recently, The Boys of 96. Have you, have you said, I mean, it's a programme or it's something on that Sky have been doing, going back and speaking to all the players that were in the squad in, in 96 and all that kind of gubbins. They, they got beat in the semi-final simply. But anyway, if they'd have done the, the Boys of September 96, it might have been a bit different. I would have been drawn into the conversation here. And I remember watching all these clips of the players training in their green flag training gear. And it brought back the horrible, horrible memory for me. Because everything looks so baggy. But I remember being given my first training kit when I got, you know, you stay at the hotel and they, they, they don't slip it under the door because there's a lot of training kit, there's towels involved. They have to open the door to, to give you it. And I remember I thought, well, the first time I put it on is not the morning I'm going training. I've got to, you know, I've got to try this on looking at, do I look like an England player? And of course I didn't. The problem was with the shorts. They hadn't appreciated the problem I have with my hips. So I, the shorts were long enough and baggy enough in the leg but around the, around the waist, they were a little bit snug. And luckily, because I'm, I'm a man who prepares very well for, for, for everything, every aspect of my life, I had a, a wash bag with a pair of scissors. And what I had to do was just snip the waistband just to give it a little bit more you know, freedom so I could actually get 
my shorts on so I could go to my first England training session. But if I hadn't done that and prepared well the night before, I could, my, my circulation to my legs could have been cut off by the tightness of the green flag shorts. I can't blame green flag. I presume they're a decent recovery service. <laughs> they didn't produce the training kit. But was I the? There must have been other players that had quite. Matt Letizier, he must. Do you think he had the same problem with? Or did he just because he'd been around a bit longer than me? Did he put the word in and say, "Can I get an extra, extra large pair of shorts so I don't have this problem"? But I was so embarrassed, and I thought, well, the kit they give you must be for an England footballer, and I had to snip the waistband just to get my shorts on. It's it is embarrassing, but I, I, I shouldn't really be talking about this. But my synthesis, luckily, over the years since I retired, not had too many problems there. Everywhere else has been a problem. Aging has not been good to the rest of my joints, but my symphysis pubis seems to have, have weathered the uh, the retirement storm quite well. <laughs> Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, to Rory, and to Andy, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Rory, when I mentioned symphysis pubis, you nod and you nodded sagely as if mm. you were well aware of the problems this, this cartilaginous pad might cause. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just when I gave birth, Chinch. <laughs> no, I don't know. It just it, it, someone. Had, I think someone had mentioned a, a synthesis pubis to me before. I don't. Was it Ilkai? Was it Ilkai? Maybe. No. It, or, it, no, it, no. no I think I think Chinch has mentioned it previously in a different context, a slightly a less right. hilarious context. Yes, I think I've heard about your synthesis pubis before, Chinch. My it, synthesis pubis, in particular. Yeah, just yours, oh. not 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 anyone else's. <laughs> I think it was either an NCT thing before before Ed's arrival. Is it NCT or NCP? Which one is the car park? NCP's the car park. <laughs> yeah, NCP yeah, is the car park, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pert, that'll help you. Yeah. 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 Teach your son. <laughs> yeah. So it must have been that. No, it, just, it was, just, it was just, just brought back, you know, memories, hearing Synthesis Pubis me- mentioned again. Uh, and I enjoyed it. That's all. <laughs> there was one. What's the, the, the knee? Uh, you, you've mentioned the knee one before. The knee one? Was it it the, sounds the, like the, something my, else, doesn't it? Oh, my, my, my oh, it was autograph, yeah. Patella <laughs> yes. Autograph, yes. Your yes, autograph, Patella. Yeah, your autograph, Patella. G-R-A-F-T, autographed. Yeah. The one oh, that he signs, like no. a kid signs a broken arm. <laughs>